What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For. People who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Dine for the podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Scott Harrison. And as I looked around the charitable sector, I didn't see anything that resembled an Apple or a Nike or a Virgin, mm. you know, that was, that was creative. And, and I wanted to build that. Scott Harrison is the CEO and founder of Charity Water, a nonprofit that funnels public donations entirely into clean water projects. His transformation from a New York City nightclub promoter to a global humanitarian was driven by witnessing the critical effects of unclean water in Liberia as a photojournalist. From a small team in a tiny Manhattan apartment, he established Charity Water, which has since raised more than $740 million. Harrison's journey is acclaimed in Fortune's 40 Under 40, Forbes Impact 30, and his New York Times best-selling book, Thirst. Please enjoy my conversation with Scott Harrison. Scott, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Where are you based? I'm in Chicago, but I'm originally from south of Boston. Oh, okay. And you are out of New Jersey or New York? No, I'm in, I'm in Nashville. Although we, uh, we, we were in Manhattan for 26 years and we have a place outside of Manhattan, like a farm outside of Manhattan, and then we're in Nashville for the school year. So we just got back yesterday. Interesting. What prompted that move? Uh, it was called the COVID shuffle. I think, you know, we, we had two kids in a two bedroom apartment in March of 2020 and decided we didn't want to weather COVID in Manhattan in quarantine, you know, on the 21st floor of a tiny apartment. Understood. So we wound up, we wound up renting a farm, kind of crazy story, a 250 acre farm with this old seven bedroom house. And it was kind of, you know, it hadn't been taken care of. The owner hadn't been there for 10 years and it was just a rental property. And then we wound up buying it. And then we had this kind of crazy moment that our, our mortgage was half of our rent. Oof. So the mortgage of a seven-bedroom, 250-acre pro property was half of the rent of our two-bedroom in Manhattan. Yeah. So we wound up spending 18 months and you know, we did the COVID thing. We had 26 chickens and uh, we fixed up the, the house room by room. So you know, 50 trips to Home Depot. And then I started traveling again. I do about 100 flights a year. So wow. it's just too far to an airport. So we wanted to keep it okay. and find a, a small house and a good place to for our kids. We have three now. And uh, now we go between Nashville and, and the farm. Okay, great story. But you still didn't answer the question of why Nashville? Because I know you grew yeah. up in New Jersey. Yeah, for, in New I've York. always wanted to live in the South. Okay. Uh, four seasons, family values, good schools, no okay. state tax. 
Great. Uh, and an and an amazing airport that was 25 minutes from home. See, there we go. <laughs> it yeah, comes I drive my truck things. to the airport and I valet. I love uh, it. And it's great. I toss them the keys and I'm at the gate in nine or 10 minutes. See, the ease of life. You cannot be understated, yeah. right? And, you know, that used to be an hour 20 to JFK and then 30 minutes to gate. So, you know, when you're doing 100 flights a year, the time to and from the airport was an incredible amount of hours. And then yes. there's an accident and Sam, you, you land at five and you're home at nine. Yeah, you've given yourself so much of your life back. It's been great. And my kids love it. They're in public school. You know, the public schools here are incredible and they bike to school. That's yeah, great. That's awesome. You know, and, and I think COVID told us as well, you know, we can do our work from, from anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm fascinated to dive into your story. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about Charity Water and kind of the genesis of the idea. But before we do that, I always ask the guests their favorite restaurant. And you, knowing you are a New Jersey guy who spent so much time in New York and not just spent time in New York, but like knew the scene, right? Like a nightclub promoter knows not only where to go at night, but where to eat and where to enjoy yourself. So I was fascinated to hear your answer. I still am, but there's a wrench in it because you now live in Nashville. I thought you'd pick a New York restaurant. So what is going to be your favorite restaurant? If you can, oh, I can pick a New York restaurant. No, you can pick. I, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in anything. New York all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you pick wherever. You can pick a Nashville restaurant. It doesn't matter. You know, I'm a, I'm a fit. We, we'll, we'll both. We have a, we have a chef here called Sean Brock, and he has two places called Audrey and June, okay. and uh, they're great. He was in Chef's Table and. They're affordable and a lot of fun. June is kind of the four-hour commitment, and Audrey's the two-hour commitment. Okay. Uh, and then I actually like a place that is a little, I don't know, it's not super, it's not a super foodie place, but it's called La Mercerie mm -hmm. in Manhattan, and it's an old furniture store that's been turned into uh, a restaurant. So they just have great taste and great food. It's a cool scene. That's interesting because La Mercerie, I, I'm very familiar with that restaurant is a absolutely beautiful restaurant. It is yeah. from every angle and their attention to detail and their yeah. design aesthetic is like off the charts, especially for New York restaurants, which happen to be typically a little bit smaller. This is not, this is a generalization, yeah. but smaller and darker. They have a lot of light and, and a lot of design aesthetic to them. Does that speak to you? Are you somebody yeah. who's really into yeah. design? Yeah, no, I, the, the aesthetics are, are very important. Yeah. Okay. You know, we, could, we, we could talk about that in the yeah, building. No. I, I, I married my graphic designer, the oh, creative there. director. <laughs> <laughs> there you so. go. Well, I always say someone's favorite restaurant speaks to who they are, and no one has come on this podcast and or the TV show and picked a restaurant for the design. So like, you're the first. Yeah, yeah, and it's not the food. You're right. It's yeah. not the food. I mean, I would say Balthazar, you know, I used to go to all the time. That's for the scene. I mean, that's sure. to feel like you're in New York, you know, New York. Yeah. Uh, breakfast at Balthazar yes. used to be where I take all my meetings. Yes. You know, and it's not for the $38 eggs. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. I it's, get it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you feel Obvious. like you're, you're in a really special place. I used to love the Wolseley in London, you know, same, same kind of feel. Yeah. It's about atmosphere, right? And creating an environment and a vibe. Okay. So take me back to your childhood. In New sure. Jersey, what was it like growing up in your house? Were there any like unspoken rules of your family or like, how would you characterize your childhood? Well, I had a bizarre childhood. I was born in Philadelphia. Okay. And then when I was four, my parents moved to South Jersey. My dad wanted to get closer to his new job and reduce his commute. And, you know, he really had this vision of building a big family, being a present father, and we moved into a four-bedroom drab gray house in the dead of winter. And what we didn't know was the house came with a free carbon monoxide gas leak. Oh, my God. So it, was, it was advertised as an energy-efficient house, which is great as long as it's not leaking carbon monoxide, which yeah. it was. So we all start to get these strange symptoms, some headaches, some allergies. And then on New Year's Day, 1980, uh, my mom passes out unconscious on the bedroom floor. Oh, my God. So she is the canary in the coal mine, which leads to a long discovery of blood tests, finally discovery of massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream, and then the discovery of the gas leak in the basement, which wow. was an old furnace. So my dad you know, rips out the heater with an HVAC friend after diagnosing the leak, and you know, it's, it's lying out on the, the curb. 
But to make a very long story short, dad and I recover and my mom never does. So she's an invalid from this point on. Oh, I'm so uh, sorry. That's awful. Permanently. Yeah. So what happened was she got so much exposure 24 seven. She was, you know, unpacking the boxes and putting all the frames on the wall. And this is over the course of what kind of time frame? Couple months, couple months, slow exposure. So her immune system just never bounced back. So it, it irreparably shut down. So from that point on, my mom was allergic to the world, we would say. Mm. Uh, if you name it and it made her sick, mm. if it had any hint of chemical or toxin in it. So soap would make her sick, perfume, car fumes, you know, the smell of a gas stove seven houses down. Mm. There were signs on the outside of the house, keep out, keep out, you know, chemically sensitive patient. I remember one detail, she she was a journalist uh, before she got sick and she used to love to read. She was an English major mm. and the ink from books now made her sick. Oh, wow. So the workaround yeah. here was that I could bake her books in the oven slowly, you know, at like 200. And then she could handle the books with cotton gloves. She would put the books inside a special cellophane bag and then she always wore a mask. So I have 40 years of experience with N95s mm. uh, and, and 3M's, you know, entire family of, of masks. And then, you know, with her mask on, with her gloves on, with the book stuck inside a cellophane bag, she could read. And she lived in a tile bathroom that had been converted to a bedroom and everything was covered in aluminum foil. So, oh my I mean, God, what an image. Yeah, so that was childhood. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it what was an weird. image. And how old were you when she passed away? Uh, she just passed away about five years ago okay. uh, today, actually. This is the five-year anniversary of her death. And she died from pancreatic cancer. She did. She, she just kind of learned how to live in isolation and avoiding exposure to everything chemical. They, they made a movie called Safe with Julianne Moore, which yes. is probably the closest uh, to, to her condition. And Julianne eventually just goes out in the desert and lives in like a camper in Utah. So she lived uh, for many years in this state of just yeah. hypersensitivity to the world. And, and for for decades, right? For decades, she lived in this yep. state. And how did that frame not only your childhood, but as you headed up, like when you were thinking about going off to college, what did you want to be? And what did you want to do? And how yeah. was your childhood impacted by that? Well, I wanted to be a doctor mm -hmm. so that I could cure mom and people like her. And I was a caregiver. So I was, I was an only child. So family planning stopped. She miscarried what would have been my sister. And then family planning stopped. And I wanted to cure her. So I was brought up in the Christian church. My parents were non-denominational. You know, they would, they had a very authentic faith. I think it's the only thing that got them through this. And they stayed married for 49 and a half years before wow. she died. Amazing. And you know, I, I grew up this kind of independent kid who was doing the cooking for the family, doing the cleaning, later on taking her to doctor's visits and, and special clinics and going and buying organic food. And, you know, very, very kind of confident and independent as a result of that. I also was a, you know, very puritanical kid. So I didn't drink, I didn't cuss, I didn't smoke, I didn't sleep around, I didn't try drugs. Scott, was, you know where I'm going with this. This is just yeah. fascinating. Well, that was that was act one <laughs> of my life. So at 18, I decided not to become a doctor, uh, but instead to grow my hair down on my shoulders, join a rock band where I played keyboard and do all those things aforementioned uh, that I was not allowed to do and do them, do them all in New York City. Yeah. So- I moved to the to Manhattan and just had that kind of cliche rebellion moment. Now it's my turn. I'm going to have some fun. Uh, I, I want to sleep around. I want to try drugs and I want to drink and smoke and gamble and you know, all the vices and see how that feels and try them all on. And the band eventually broke up because we hated each other. So that didn't last long. But I <laughs> stumbled upon this profession uh, which would be the, my career for the next 10 years as a nightclub promoter. And I realized that you could indulge in all of these vices and get paid a lot of money for it. So you could get paid to party publicly uh, if you could get the right people in the in the room. At this point, are you going to college and nightclub promoting or have you ditched college? I've ditched college at this point, but I okay. actually pick it up part time because I felt bad for my dad. OK. And he had saved up. Yeah, uh, you know, from the minute I was a kid, you know, the five twenty nine or whatever that yeah. was, and I wound up going to NYU part time, 
But C minus student, I didn't think I was going to graduate. I didn't think I even attended enough classes to get the diploma. And, you know, eventually I didn't, I didn't even see it. They just mailed it straight to my dad. I just gave his address at the end. So, you know, 1% of my life was college and 99% of my life was partying and running nightclubs. You were entrepreneurial. I mean, clearly yeah, you were entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. and you were working, right? It, it, we're, we're laughing about it, but it's it very much is a business. And so you were learning skills in the business world. I was, yeah. And I had side jobs. I was a web designer for plastic surgeons. I worked at a music store for a little bit, you know, selling kind of high-end gear to very wealthy musicians. And then the clubs, you know, just got, I got more and more successful at that. And that became the full-time thing. Did you have a breaking point or did you have a moment of saturation in the world of clubbing, in the world of nightclubs where you said, was there like an epiphany where you're like, I cannot do this anymore? Yeah, well, it, that that club phase lasted 10 years. So 18 to 28. And I worked at 40 different nightclubs just to give you a sense of uh, oh you know, how that works. You know, you're, you're bringing a group of famous people and rich people. And if you put them in the same room, then you hope the magic happens. And the rich people spend a lot of money because they want to be around the beautiful models and the, mm -hmm. and the celebrities. So you're building a list as a promoter. And the club doesn't matter. It's, it's an asset light model. So you can go to any club if you can bring the right people. Mm -hmm. And they'll pay you handsomely to bring the crowd. Mm. So we would just move. You know, you get bored with one club and your, your group says, ah, we're kind of sick of coming here. We've been coming here for nine months. You just go take them all to the next club mm. that's opening up. So yeah, the breaking point was 10 years into that. I was in Punta del Este. I was driving a BMW at the time. I was dating a girl who was in the cover of magazines. So, you know, all, all you date as a nightclub promoter is models because mm -hmm. that's what everybody does. And sure. that, that becomes tiring after a while, I think for them as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was in Punta with the grand piano in my loft, the car, the girl, the money. You know, I remember we spent thousand dollars on fireworks, and you know, we we had people serving us in this massive villa. You know, that came with a yacht, and I just remember being so deeply unhappy because this felt like the most that I'd ever had, mm -hmm. and it was it was never going to be enough. Somebody always had more. And I was surrounded by richer, more successful people who were partying in their 50s and 60s and sometimes 70s, dating girls that were younger than their daughters. Mm -hmm. And of course, their daughters didn't speak to them anymore. And, you know, it was like the veil was lifted. And I realized I, I've somehow, <laughs> you know, if, if I go back to the, the prodigal son, you know, reference, you know, I'm like in the pigsty covered in feces. <laughs> Even though my life looks great, I'm emotionally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm morally bankrupt. Uh, I'm not in love with any of these girls that I'm dating. They're not in love with me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'll never be enough. I, this is just this insatiable desire for more. You know, I hadn't attended church in 10 years. I, I had been, I'd lost all interest in faith. Uh, it's hard to do lines of cocaine and, and pray the next morning. <laughs> so <laughs> I chose the cocaine. Uh, but really, at this moment, it was a it was a turning point of of wanting to find my way back uh, home, I guess you could say, and, mm -hmm. and back to you know the morality, the spirituality that my parents had tried to instill in me as a child, and and maybe reacquaint myself with faith and and morality in a different way as an adult. And you know this this happened pretty quickly. So this was about a month or two of soul searching, and I realized. I would have to completely get out of nightlife. I would have to completely change my environment. Uh, I could not be the person I wanted to be. Going to dinner at 10 p.m., the Wasn't club at work. 12, yeah, not and then work. getting dragged along to after hours, some cocaine bar at 5 a.m. to then go take Ambien to sleep at noon. To I'm then getting, get up I'm getting a headache just listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah well, that's, that, was, that was the life. Fast forward to a few months later, I make this decision to sell everything I own. I ask myself the question, you know, what would the opposite of my life look like? Mm. And the idea I got was this kind of old Christian concept of tithing. Mm -hmm. And what if I gave one year of service as, as kind of the, the, the gift of the 10 years that I had selfishly wasted? Like a penance almost. Like a penance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and could I be, could I be useful? And my idea was, 
uh, start life over and go apply to humanitarian organizations and and do a one year service tour uh, wow. as a as an unpaid volunteer. So I'm very excited about this idea. This is a this is going to be about as opposite of my life. And I apply to the ten you know or so famous humanitarian organizations that I've tangentially heard of over the years. You know, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Save the Children, Doctors Without Borders, World Vision, you know, et cetera. And, uh, you know, Scott Harrison, the great nightclub promoter, is now ready <laughs> for service. You know, I would like to volunteer. Well, uh, you're probably not surprised what happens next. I'm denied by all 10 organizations. <laughs> you know, it turns out, turns out Doctors Without Borders is looking for doctors. Not people selling selling bottles of uh, champagne <laughs> or spraying them at clubs. Although the skills you've acquired probably well, serve well, you in you a know, lot later, of ways. <laughs> it's, it's funny. World Vision turned me down and uh, I had some funny conversations with their CEO many years later. But at that point, you know, nobody, nobody wanted me. And interestingly, you mentioned college. I wound up dusting off the NYU degree and I'd gotten into communications and, and journalism just because mm -hmm. it was the easiest thing for me. I was mm -hmm. a pretty good writer and pretty good photographer. So I applied to this one organization as a photojournalist. Mm. Now I am not technically a photojournalist. But you can take pictures. <laughs> but I could take pictures and I can write. And I had a degree saying I had studied this. I applied to them and they are going on a mission to a country I'd never heard of called Liberia mm -hmm. in West Africa. Mm -hmm. It turned out it was the poorest country in the world at that time because a 14-year civil war had just ended. And the fun catch about this gig was I would have to pay them $500 a month to volunteer. Oh, my God. So not only was this unpaid, this was they got paid. And I said, if you'll take me, this sounds perfect. Wow. And, uh, you know, they were a little wary of me at first. They agreed to meet me first, not just take me. And then I convinced them that I wasn't going to throw any wild parties or, or corrupt. This was kind of a, it was a medical organization that operated on a huge hospital ship, a 500 foot, you know, so imagine an ocean liner that had been converted to a state-of-the-art hospital. And what they did was they encouraged doctors and surgeons and medical professionals to come donate their vacation time, you know, four weeks or you know, sometimes even take a three or six month sabbatical and volunteer for free. And there was a whole crew that wrapped around those medical services and they would sail the ship up and down the coast of Africa looking for people who had no access to medical care or who lived in countries that just didn't have the access to medical care. So my job... Uh, again, my job that I was paying to do uh, was going to be to document everything that happened over this year mission. And what year is this? This is 2004, the fall of 2004. So 2004, you make a dramatic departure from your glamorous and busy life as a New York City nightclub promoter. You're on this cruise ship of goodness, wondering what does this experience show you? And how are you personally changed by this experience? Yeah, well, I, I believe that I had to quit my vices in order to kind of open the next chapter of my life. And there was something really beautifully symbolic about oh. walking up the gangway of a 500-foot ship mm -hmm. and then sailing away to a new continent and to a new life. So I remember I got fantastically drunk the <laughs> night before I had to uh, report for duty and surrender my passport. And I smoked, I think, three packs of cigarettes. I mean, 60 Marlboro Reds. I mean, I was going for it. And, you know, that was it. I just said, I'm going to walk up the gangway. So no more drinking smoke after again. that. I'm never, I mean, I drink now. I right. enjoy craft IPAs and, and good wine. But, mm -hmm. you know, never touched uh, Coke or any of that again. Never gambled again. You know, never looked at another pornographic image again. Never smoked again. I really just said, I got to go cold turkey mm -hmm. in order to allow this new life to, you know, potentially to evolve. Now, I will say... Uh, none of those things are cool to do with a group of Christian humanitarian doctors. <laughs> so the environment changing really helped me. I don't right. think I could have gone cold turkey in the clubs right. and just sat there, you know, as I'm being sprayed with champagne and people are doing lines in front of me. Right. You had to go halfway around the world. You had to put yourself I think so. in a completely so that, different you know, There was some self-control involved. I mean, quitting smoking was rough. I remember walking around the ship with, you know, the patch on and chewing Nicorette, you know, like crazy. The environment changed and that felt great. And, you know, I'll tell you a moment that was really probably the most profound moment for me. So an advanced team 
had posted flyers throughout the country advertising the coming of these doctors, the coming of these doctors and the coming of the ship. And we would do what was called the patient screening or the triage. And people would respond and they would turn up and then we would, we would see them, we would diagnose them. And then we would, we had about 1500 available surgery slots. So a lot of the stuff we were doing was cleft lips and cleft palates and facial tumors and flesh eating disease. I mean, stuff I'd never even heard of before. So my third day there, I, I know that we have 1500 available surgery slots, which sounds like a lot of people. It does. You know, are there, are there really 1500 massively deformed or, you know, people in need of this kind of surgery? And I remember grabbing my two Nikon D1X cameras, it was five in the morning, uh, jumping into medical scrubs, then jumping into this convoy of Land Rovers. It was, it was dark. And we snaked through the city. And I learned that the government had given us their football stadium, their big soccer stadium in, in the middle of town. And as we turned the corner, there were more than 5,000 sick people standing in the parking lot. Wow. waiting for our doctors to get there and open the doors and begin the process. Mm. And that hit me really hard, you know, just knowing that we were going to send more than 3,500 sick people home because we didn't have enough doctors. Right. We didn't have enough uh, services to provide. And then the first child that I met that day was this 14-year-old boy. His name was Alfred. He was choking on his own face and he had... Uh, a, a massive tumor the size of a volleyball that had taken over his mouth, pushed his teeth out. And I'd never seen anything like this before. And he was terrified. Uh, and, and his mom was smart. She'd gotten him there a couple of days early. So he was the first to be seen. And I remember just weeping, you know, seeing all of this sickness, seeing the, the, the sadness and the terror in the eyes of people who knew they were dying. They were so close to uh, the edge of death with these conditions. And, you know, one of the doctors came over and said, Scott, focus on the hope. You know, we're going to be able to help 1500 people today. Mm. And a couple of days later, I scrubbed up and I remember documenting this eight and a half hour surgery as Dr. Gary Parker, who was the head of Mercy Ships, he was the head surgeon, you know, removed Alfred's tumor. And then I got to watch him heal on the hospital ward. And then I got to take him back to his village without the tumor mm. and watch him just welcomed back into this community who had long written him off for dead. Mm. And it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was a true kind of transformation of before and after. And then I got to, to not only see that, but document that 1500 times, you know, up close and personal over the next, uh, over the next year. And I love how you say I got to, because you, in that, in your words and in your, in your voice, I can hear that that was an opportunity you know, yes, you were paying, yeah. you were paying for the opportunity, but you really did get to because when you had come from the excess of the nightclub world to see such lack, right, to see a world of such lack must have been, I don't want to use the word sobering because it's almost cliche, right? But it must have really been so impactful. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's right. I mean, it felt like a real privilege to be able to serve people, uh, you know, Liberia at the time, you know, had no access to clean water, no access to running, no access to electricity. There was one doctor for every 50,000 people wow. in the country. So this was, this was a really extreme environment. The war had just ended. There were 14,000 peacekeepers from the UN, which at the time was the largest force ever deployed in the history of the world for peacekeepers. And yeah, it, it felt like a real privilege to be there. So I finished that year... And, you know, the cool thing was I was able to almost immediately redeem the 10 years in nightlife because I had this big list, this big email list of all the people who had come to my parties for the previous 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I just started emailing them the photos and the videos and the stories uh, that I was documenting. And what was the purpose of that? Why were you, were you asking for money or what were you doing? Not really. Uh, <laughs> there was a way to support, but yeah. you know, telling them the stories. And then later, yeah, hey, why don't you go support a surgery? You know, for only a $400 donation, you could. Now, Mercy Ships didn't hire me to do this. I was just kind of, you know, on my own trying to raise awareness and raise money for the organization. So, you know, I remember this one replied once. It was a woman who wrote me back and said, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel. And I'm in a brightly lit office and I'm just weeping at my computer, seeing these images, you know, reading stories of girls my age who were just born in a completely different world. A world without access to healthcare. 
how can I help? How can I serve? How can I send money? So I realized the impact of, and, and I think some of these people were telling. Curious. I mean, this is a guy they had just done cocaine with. You know, now he's like on some, you know, some do-gooder <laughs> hospital ship, <laughs> you know, running around taking pictures of tumors. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Angostura. If you've ever made a cocktail at home, you've most likely shaken Angostura bitters into your cocktail at the very end of the cocktail making process. In addition to bitters, Angostura has been making world-class rum for more than 130 years. The next fall cocktail you make, try the beautiful, smooth flavor of Angostura rum. It will transport you to the Caribbean islands of Trinidad and Tobago. The House of Angostura will celebrate its 200-year anniversary of turning drinks into cocktails in 2024. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. One thing that's really kind of washing over me as I hear your story is just what a great storyteller you are. Because, you know, obviously what you were doing when you were texting all of your, your contact list was you were sharing stories of your experience. But in order to start anything, whether you found a company or do what you did, is you've got to be able to, you know, not only tell a story really well, but you have to make it compelling enough that other people want to join you. And that's kind of what I want to get into in this next part of the conversation is of all the ways you could have helped, you know, with your experience with the Mercy Hospital, you chose water. When you came back to New York and you assembled a team and you wanted to do water, what was the reason? Yeah, well, that year ended and I just didn't know what was next. So I went back for a second year. So I just went back to Liberia to do the same thing again. And it was in that second year that I I got off of the ship. And I remember buying a motorcycle for 400 bucks. And I, I went into the rural areas and I saw how people were living. And what I saw okay, was two, two crazy things. I learned that half of the country was drinking disgusting, contaminated, diseased water. And they were drinking water from swamps and from open ponds and from muddy rivers. And then I learned that half of the sickness in the country, according to the World Health Organization, was because people were drinking dirty water and didn't have access to sanitation and hygiene. So I kind of had this eureka moment where, oh my gosh, no wonder there's 5,000 people standing outside a stadium with things growing on their face. This is the water they're bathing with. This is the water they're drinking. And I learned very quickly there were 28 diseases you could track directly back to unsafe water. And, you know, they were all here in this country. 
So I remember showing these pictures of dirty water to Gary Parker, the medical examiner. And, you know, he just kind of said very simply, you seem passionate about this. Why don't you go back to New York and why don't you make it your mission to bring everybody in the world clean water? Mm. I mean, wow. you'd be the, he, I remember he said kind of, you know, coyly, like you'd be the greatest doctor in the history of the world if you just provided the world with the most basic need for human health, and which in, is water. When you heard that, you obviously internalized that. Take me to that moment. Like, did you think, did you agree with him or was it something that you kind of brushed off and it sat in the back? I think I brushed head? off at first. You know, I was interested in water. It did seem to me like the root cause of so much of the sickness. If everybody had water in the country, you know, maybe 500 people would turn up or 200 people would turn up. I know, but 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 also like, was this not like a full circle moment for you thinking of your mother? Yeah, I, n no. I mean, when I when I wrote a book later, you know, I got <laughs> to kind of explore all these funny, interesting ties. You know, yeah. my mom actually used to have to drink a special kind of water from an artesian well wow. that would help her body. And, and you know, there's the, the word kind of pure yeah. was, it's the, it's the first chapter in my book, but it was really the whole life that we led, everything was making sure the house was pure. If she got into the car, the car was pure. I mean, everything sterilized. Yes. And and that was how she could survive. You know, and, and even like as a, as a kid, I was like this pure kind of virtuous kid growing up who didn't do any of the bad things. So yeah, I, th th I, that was all later, you know, yeah. none of this, I was oblivious to any of these to things. To me, listening to your story, because I didn't know anything really about your story at all. It's like hitting me over the head, like your whole life was preparing you in, in various ways for this opportunity and this moment to help. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I come back and water is going to be my thing. At the time, there were a billion people living without access to water. So it's one in six people alive. Nobody was talking about it. None of my friends, you know, I'd say, hey, you know, the people are drinking dirty water. I'm like, what? We drink Voss water in your clubs for $10 a bottle. You know, <laughs> that was that was their context of water. It was it was what kind of fancy boutique bottled water was was in vogue at the time. I realized, you know, wow, this is a really big problem. And I'm 30 when I started. Now, I also had no money. So I had given everything I had to Mercy Ships and the people I'd met along the way. And you know, nightclub promoters aren't good at saving money anyway. The lifestyle is, you know, you're spending more than you make. Mm -hmm. So this, in, in some ways, this was a terrible time to start a water charity. I had just come off the ship. I was living on a closet floor uh, in Manhattan for free rent. And uh, I had no money. And then I also came back to a $35,000 tax bill because my ex-club partner had not dissolved the company like he said he was going to, nor paid taxes. So what do you do? How do you get the money going? How do you get it started? Well, those early days, I remember taking a used Mac laptop around and making 10 to 15 presentations a day. Hmm. Here are my pictures. Here's what I saw. Who are you in front of? Are you in front of companies? Or well, are you in front I'm, of I'm, no, I'm just going to people that I knew. Okay. Uh, you know, former clients. Friends and family. Yep. But then they would say, oh, go meet somebody and go meet somebody. And it turned out the, the, the kinds of people who are coming to nightclubs, spending $20 on a cocktail, you know, $1,000 on a bottle of Cristal are not super generous. I mean, they weren't. They propelled more connections than growth. Okay. Let's say that. But- Connections are good. Let me, let me just try to put it start. together. So yeah, I'm, I, I know exactly what I'm trying to do and I have no money, but I go and I scrape together some money to pay a lawyer to start a 501c3 and to start the process to become a legitimate charity. And then uh, I don't have any money to pay myself or anybody else. So I throw an event in a nightclub. So this is kind of a fun turn. Let me, let me just say that I've, I thought very carefully about the business model and I had the advantage of not knowing anything about institutional philanthropy or really how a charity would be built or run. So as I talked to everyday people who worked at MTV or Sephora or uh, you know Chase Bank, I realized there was a huge cynicism and skepticism when it came to charities. Mm. And I realized my friends didn't trust charities and they weren't giving. And then I learned there was data behind this. Uh, USA Today had done a poll, found 42% of Americans say, we don't trust charities. Interesting. And more recently, a poll was done by actually NYU Wagner, uh, found seven out of 10 Americans, 70% of Americans believe charities waste their donations. Hmm. So I thought, okay, I want to try and actually solve or make a dent in a problem as big as the billion person 
global water crisis. We're going to need all the cynics and the skeptics. We're going to need everybody at some point to call this their mission and get this done. So I, I came up with a very unique business model where I thought, what if I could promise every donor to the organization that 100% of whatever they give, whether it was a dollar or $1,000 or maybe one day a million dollars, 100% would go directly to build water projects in these nations that would help the poorest people in the world get yes. access to clean wow. water. So that had to be part of your ethos, the clear, the transparent, the pure yeah, nature of it. See, I didn't think about any of this at the time, but uh, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, and then in a second bank account, so an actual different bank account with different numbers, I would somehow raise all of the overhead from a different smaller group of people who wouldn't mind paying eventually for staff salaries and office rent and phone bills and insurance and the, the toner for the Epson copy machine or the flights to the field as we develop these programs. So that was the first model. That was the 100% model, which 17 years later, you know, has been really one of the, the biggest keys to our success. Fast forward, you know, we've raised now almost a billion dollars wow. from millions of people That's all amazing. around the world, you know, millions and millions of donors around the world. But that 100% model is why so many people, you know, even, you know, as, as recent as yesterday uh, would say, this is why I give because I know that every single part of my money, whether it's I'm giving in pounds or euros or dollars or francs, you know, everything is going directly to help people. The second thing was I kind of then just realized, well, if, if money was not fungible, if we had these two distinct bank accounts, couldn't we prove to people what we did with their money? Mm. I mean, couldn't we show them, you know, I was thinking back to Mercy Ships, you know, if somebody spent $380 on a surgery, and Mercy Ships had a 100% model. Couldn't I show them the actual person and say, you helped Juliet or Mariama? Um, and Mercy Ships didn't. So it was kind of, there wasn't that one-to-one -one connection. But proof became this second pillar to the organization where I wanted to show people the water projects that their money had built. I was very fortunate. I'd met the founder of Google Earth. So let me just say, Charity Water started before Google Maps. Okay, so that dates us. We're 17 years old now. And I'd met the founder of Google Earth, and he was telling me that, you know, what he was building, Google Earth later became Google Maps. And I realized that we could post the satellite images and GPS coordinates of every single clean water project we would mm. build around the world. And we could potentially build the most transparent charity in the history of the world, mm. therefore winning trust. So it all came back to that trust. So the first pillar, 100% model, second was let's do everything we can to prove where people's money went. And then the third was really to build a brand, to build an epic, imaginative, inspiring brand that was not based on shame and guilt, mm -hmm. like so many charities, but hope and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as I looked around the charitable sector, I didn't see anything that resembled an Apple or a Nike or a Virgin, mm -hmm. you know, that was, that was creative. And, and I wanted to build that. So I put these three things together. The, maybe the fourth was we would only work through locals. So we wouldn't send anybody that looked like me from New York City to Malawi to go drill a well, a water well, or even to India. Um, we would go and find the local people who were doing this work, who had the drilling rigs, who had the proficiency, but they didn't have the money. And we would scale their organizations. Uh, we would provide the funding and the acceleration and the tools and the rigs and the technicians and the training, but they would get the credit. They would be the ones actually leading their communities forward in Uganda or Cambodia or Bangladesh, they'd be the ones leading their countries forward. So I put all this together and the first big win was actually on day one. I threw a party for my 31st birthday in a nightclub that was donated. I got open bar donated and I emailed everybody I knew and 700 people showed up. Mm. And at the end of the night, we had $15,000 in cash that was collected in this big plexi box. And we took 100% of it to uh, Northern Uganda and we built our first well. And then we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates and video of clean water flowing back to the 700 people. And we said, here's what your $20 did. Wow. Here are the lives of the people who are now drinking clean water because you came and gave $20. And, and did the 15,000 cover it for Northern Uganda? I mean, was that- It covered a well. It, it covered, covered a well, well and then we were able to fix a couple more. Yeah, it's about 10,000, 10 to $12,000 
to do an entire community. And, and what was that like for you personally, that first well? Because I mean, there's been so many since that 17 years, but I'm wondering what was that? Yeah, there've been a, yeah, 140,000 since. Oh. Uh, well, it was very cool. Uh, and I actually got to go back to that well on the 10th anniversary, which was really special to see it still working a decade later, knowing the origin story and knowing that you know over 10 million liters of clean water had been pumped over a decade because a bunch of people came to a club and threw in 20 bucks. That's incredible. But that was really proving out the model. And then it was incredibly difficult to raise the overhead. And, you know, if we had more time, I mean, I wrote about, wrote a whole chapter in the book of, you know, how difficult that was. In some ways, people love the idea of giving where 100% of their money went, but then paying staff salaries, much harder of a value proposition. So I would have to kind of do twice the work. And I would have to specifically ask a business leader, hey, I really don't need your money for a well. I need your money for a water technician, uh, an accountant, you know, an accounting system, you know, our first office. So what have you learned about raising money, Scott, through your 17 years of really hard charging efforts? You were obviously very much motivated by an inspiring goal and aspiring organization. But how do you get other people to buy into that and give you the money necessary? I mean, I think you mentioned storytelling earlier. That's really important. I mean, people don't respond to statistics. Right. You know, if I tell you that, you know, today 771 million people don't have water, you know, 4,500 kids are dying every day of bad water. You know, we just kind of glaze over. But telling the story of a, of a child or a woman you know, who's trapped in this untenable situation and, and doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. That's really, really, really important. You know, I, I get to, I, I probably get to be on 50 stages or so a year. And, you know, in an hour long talk, I'm going to show 180 photos and videos. So I'm not just talking, I'm sharing and uh, I'm showing. I'm trying to immerse them in the problem. You know, it's one thing to talk about a woman who's walking eight hours with 40 pounds of dirty water on her back and then show you this crocodile infested river that she's getting water from. You know, when you see it, when you see the water, when you say, oh my gosh, I would never let my child drink that water. You know, I would never be able to carry 40 pounds up that cliff that she does twice a day. That I think has been really uh, resonant and, and in some ways unique to the, the organization. I mean, if you go on our website, I mean, we've made over 1,000 videos. There are over 1,000 charity water videos that are telling stories. Mm-hmm. There's a 20-minute video that's gotten over 100 million views. And that kind of tells the whole story. But there's these three-minute vignettes. There's stories of supporters. There's stories of a six-year-old girl who mailed us $8.15 when she learned about the organization and said she wrote a note. Uh, and said, I want people to stop dying of bad water in Africa. You know, we, we made a video about her story and her family and, and her experience. So I think that is, if I had to pick one thing, mm-hmm. it's telling true stories without hyperbole, you know, that are authentic and then inviting people in to, you know, make their money, you know, greater than, than they are in some ways, you know, to, to use their, their time or their talent or specifically in our case, the money, since we're fundraising for these projects to end some of this needless suffering and to then show them, look, we built a a competent organization, a transparent organization. You know, we are the best in class. We have, you know, now uh, over 2000 people locally across 20, 20 some countries who are implementing these projects. It's kind of head and heart at the same time, but you have to ask as well. You talked about how that first year in Liberia was sort of like a tithe. You said it was almost like an offering. A tithe, for those who aren't familiar, tithing is giving typically giving 10% of your salary. Of your money, yeah. Of charity. your money. And it is, it is like an offering as a gratitude to God for all the blessings in your life. You yeah. called that first year in Liberia a tithe, a personal tithe. You didn't have the money, but you could certainly offer yourself and everything yeah. that you brought. The Bible also promises that for those who tithe, they will see it returned to them. And I'm just wondering for you personally, 17 years later, how have you seen that tithe return to you? I mean, I think going back to what you remarked on earlier, like I get to do this. I mean, for 17 years, I've gotten to get up every day and work and build an organization that's entire sole mission is to deliver the most basic human need to people on the planet who are living without it. 
you know, it, it is it is still crazy to think about that today, as people listen to this, one in 10 humans alive are drinking disgusting water. Mm-hmm. You know, one in 10 humans, you know, 770 million people. That's two Americas population you know, full of people who have, n- have never had access to this thing that the other nine out of 10 of us just take for granted because we were born into, born into a world of clean water. Uh, my kids will never have to drink dirty water. I never had to drink dirty water. And I think I get to do this. And in a typical year, Charity Water will help about 2 million new people get access to clean water. So that works out to you know over 5,000 people every day. So at the end of the day, you know, I get to work and do my Zooms or jump on the flight or take the fundraising meetings and know that the organization, you know, in that day has brought 5,000 new humans clean water in the most inarguable common good, the the need for health, the need for education. Uh, It gives time back to women, you know, who are no longer walking I could I could spend hours talking about water. Yeah, that's <laughs> and that's, you have. The, that's the blessing. And you do. That's the blessing. That's your life, right? Um, can you t- talk or speak to your faith journey from that complete change of lifestyle and that thirst, if you will, to use your yeah. your book's title, your thirst for something more meaningful in your life? What? How is that manifested in your faith journey? Yeah. Well, I kind of came fully back, but I think I came back in a, you know, I remember growing up in a very religious environment. It was all about the rules. It was all about what you couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember when I, at 28, started reading the Bible again, I came across, you know, the, the verse in James, which says, true religion is this, look after widows and orphans in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Mm. Well, I was over two. I had done nothing <laughs> for widows and orphans or any class of people in need. And not only was I one of the most polluted people I knew, I was actually polluting others for a living. Mm. So, you know, it, it may be interesting. Charity Water is not a religious organization in any way, mm-hmm. uh, nor has it been. It is, we, we have support from you know, our biggest donors are atheists and agnostics. We have support from Jewish communities, from Muslim communities, from Mormon communities, from Christian communities. You know, I, I wanted to build something that was much bigger than what I did on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. But it's cool because I get to live out my personal theology through through my faith. Because mm-hmm. and I don't I don't believe in heaven. Anybody's drinking dirty water. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we're able to invite every single person, every single faith background, you know, every single demographic into that then we really can make progress. And I think that's why we've been able to raise now, you know, almost a billion dollars and help 17 and a half million people get water, um, which I, I really believe is the start. I mean, this is a fraction of what's needed. You put 17 and a half million people who we've helped against the current problem. It's only one, you know, 40th of the way there. So it's two, two, two and a half percent. So we are with every kind of core of our, our body and, and organization trying to figure out how we, grow the community, how we grow the awareness of this problem and and invite more people in. I never asked you why it's called charity water. Charity water. I, I didn't have any better ideas. <laughs> like uh, it's a charity that helps people get water. Um, there so is cold. a colon there. There is a colon There's there. There's a colon. So, That's uh, what I was thinking. I'm, I'm kind of joking, but you know, I thought that we would launch more initiatives. So I thought it'd be charity colon water, charity colon education, charity colon shelter. You know, I was going to I was going to take the Richard Branson playbook like Virgin and launch all these different brands. Mm-hmm. Well, my gosh, I mean, I learned pretty early on, you know, helping a billion people. Uh, I mean, we're we're the biggest water charity in America and and we're a fraction of what is actually needed to make a dent. So that focus, focus. has been has been really easy for us, I think. The other thing I realized is that by just providing people clean water, I got to move the needle on almost every other thing that I would have done next. You know, it's the most basic need for health. So rather than go build health clinics, we're bringing clean water to health clinics that don't have it. Rather than building schools, we're bringing clean water and toilets to the third of the world's schools. We don't have them. Talk about empowering women. I mean, 40 billion hours are lost by women who are just walking for water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you can give them access to clean water near the, the home, it's transformational. We've seen women get 50 hours back in their week in an instant, you know, from a Sunday 
to a Monday, their entire life changes and they start small businesses and they earn income and they provide uh, school uniforms to their family and they put their kids through school and they improve their homes and build roofs. And so, you know, water sits below. I mean, you know, the, there's the global goals at the UN. You know, I have a slide that says, you know, pick water and you get to you get eight for free. <laughs> You get to move the needle on eight primary. other global goals it is the, just it is, by doing water. It is ground zero. It is the beginning. Like nine and one. Nine yes. and one. <laughs> yes. Eight for free. One last question. You know, you've had to kind of wear so many hats since you've started this. You know, you mentioned you're on a plane all the time. You're giving speeches. You are certainly asking for money. You're telling the story of all the different things that you do in this role. What feels most uniquely you? I love speaking. I mean, I enjoyed, you know, it was very cool having the book out. And and that was a cool story too. I, I wrote a book called Thirst and uh, I wound up giving, you know, the entire book advance and all the proceeds to Charity Water. So I got to become a pretty significant donor <laughs> to my own organization in that process. You know, that was really cool, like seeing it hit the New York Times bestseller list and, and you know, hearing the response from thousands of readers who said it really changed their life or helped them alter the course of their life. I think, you know, being on stage and and sharing 200 photos, you know, going back to here's a picture of my mom and here's a picture of the heater mm-hmm. and here's a picture of Alfred and here's a picture of those 5,000 people. That gives me a lot of joy. And, you know, there was a, a really cool story once. I spoke at a big conference in Arizona. It was Inc. Magazine. So I think it was like the fastest 500 or 5,000 growing companies or something. And there was a guy in the audience who was moved by the speech and he gave $30,000 and I'd never met him. And this didn't, at the time it didn't hit my radar. And somebody took really good care of him and uh, helped him build his few wells. And then seven years later, at the end of 2020, some, some junior fundraiser on my team had approached him and, and said, Hey, would you consider giving again? And he said, you know, Hey, great timing. I'd like to give you 10 million now. Wow. And what had happened was he just sold his company and said, you know, that that speech changed my life. And I told my wife, if we ever had money, we're going to give it to that mission. Yeah. And we we do have money. And he was able to to make a $10 million gift and transform, you know, a whole lot of lives. And isn't it funny? You really have to be able to to craft the story. You have to be able to share it in a compelling way. You also need the organization. Like we knew exactly what to do with $10 million. And it was a country sponsorship in Uganda. And we're spending more than that every single year. You know, so it was kind of not missing a beat. You know, that fit really, really well into the size and the scale of our work. Um, And we actually gave him a whole lot of that family, a whole lot of choice of like, here's different ways uh, that you could invest that. So I think it's two things, you know, you you can't ask for $10 million if you haven't built an organization that, you know, has deployed an order of magnitude more with credibility, with, you know, audited financials posted for the last 17 years on the website, you know, all that, there's a lot that needs to happen in between, you know, beyond the story. We're out of time, but I've enjoyed this conversation so much, Scott. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. And listen, if people want to know more, we posted this really good video. I'm like, it's always hard for me on podcasts because people can't see the photos. (laughs) But if you go to thespring.com, we've got that video up there that's that's gotten over 100 million views on platforms. And that is our community where people give every single month. Uh, It's kind of like our Netflix or Spotify model. For, for clean water. And we now have, we call them spring members. Uh, we have members in 149 different countries. And, you know, it's crazy. It only costs $40 to give one person clean water. And, you know, we, we know there are a lot of people out there that can do that every month and, you know, give up a couple Starbucks or maybe not drink it at one dinner out. <laughs> we were talking about restaurants earlier. Right. Have a dry dinner and, and you save 40 bucks. <laughs> these Absolutely. Days. We will we will link that in the show notes, too. So thank you awesome. for letting us know. And you have a wonderful new year. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Have 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.